Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I'm in studio here in our Calvary, uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson podcast studio with Pastor Sean Richards. Hello, good sir. Here I am. Good to have you. <laughs> Uh, this is a reason for hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program where you, the live stream audience, gets to ask this guy <laughs> lots of questions as I beat up on microphones. You get to ask questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, and, uh, well, a reason for hope. Why do we believe in the Christian faith? Does God really exist? How does this passage apply to my life, and am I interpreting it correctly? That and many, many more questions that we'd encourage you to chime in and ask us about, and there are multiple ways you can do so. Uh, you can uh, just go and find us on Facebook. There's our uh, handle. You can go and search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or Calvary Christian Fellowship. Uh, or you can just go to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson. Make sure you like our page, share it. But when we go live at 5 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time every Monday through Friday, go to the comment section. Leave your question there. We'll get to it as quickly as we can. If you prefer to watch us on YouTube, you can do that as well. Uh, you can just search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube. And same thing, go to the comment section during the live stream. When we're live, we'll look at that throughout the live stream. Get your questions to get to them. If you prefer to uh, avoid social media, you can just go to our website. That's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. And you can go to the Watch Live tab and simply use that as a, a way to watch the program, as well as uh, use that little chat box to ask questions. And um, <clears throat> you can even make a prayer request. There's a little button for prayer request that you can use if you'd prefer to do that. We also have a, for those of you who are a part of our community, we also have a cool little app that if you want to take advantage of that, you can um, go to the, Apple or Google Play Store and just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Search, and if you see that little logo with the, the white dove and the red square, then that's us. And you can download the app, and on that app you can uh, keep track of what's going on in our community with events, make prayer requests, give digitally. Uh, you can join and create chat groups. It's got a digital Bible where you can leave notes and highlight text, multiple translations and do some really good Bible study because also we have our archives of sermons. We are a church that teaches verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So if you want to, let's say, come to our church and you want to see that we're going through the book of Ezekiel on our Oasis service on Wednesday evenings. Well, we're gonna go through the book of Ezekiel verse by verse, and you're gonna get to see what the entire book has to say, its historical context, the context of each chapter, what's going on in history, and what that means for us today. On Sundays, we're going through the book of Acts. So same thing, you wanna go and do a study, you can either go through what we're currently going through or go into our archives. We've taught as a church for the last 25 years, almost through the entire Bible. So there are plenty of archive sermons on our website. You can use that digital little Bible and you can uh, follow along. We also live stream to all the Amazon smart products and Roku. So if you have an Amazon Fire device that you use to live stream, uh, your favorite TV shows and so, you can go and search for us, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, add that to your channel listing and watch our services there, and you can do the same on Roku. If you want to ask a question on this program, A Reason for Hope, and you want to do so more discreetly, just email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to your questions there. We also want to encourage you to follow our senior pastor on Twitter. That's Pastor Scott Richards, 
and his X now called uh, Twitter is now called X. His handle is at Scott R4H. That's at Scott R4H. Before we get to your questions for today, I'd like to ask our uh, Bible answer guy here, Sean. I, I try to play a little bit more of the sideline guy. You know, I get the questions, I ask them, and then I probe, maybe play a little bit of the antagonist, or I just keep quiet. <laughs> but uh, Sean, would you uh, prefer to take the time to pray for our time before we begin? Prefer. Great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Please allow this program to be honoring to you. Give Adrian and I wisdom, not just in the questions that are answered, but the heart that we bring to it. Allow your name to be honored. In spite of our hearts, we pray that you would replace us and allow your people to be edified through the work you do through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, what we're going to start with today is I've spent a lot of time as a itinerant evangelist in a lot of places in the world, I won't name countries for safety's sake because I'll be returning to some of these places someday, that have um, the predominant faith is Islam. And whenever I'm sharing the gospel, one of the biggest criticisms I typically get, uh, one of the biggest challenges that Muslims have towards Christianity is the idea that we believe in three gods, or that we believe that uh, God had a kid, or uh, that God had a physical relationship with Mary, and so on and so forth. All these misunderstandings of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that God is one person, uh, uh, one God and three persons. So uh, one of the things that you wanted to do today was really get to the nuts and bolts of what the Trinity is, why it's so essential to the historic Christian faith, a fundamental, not a secondary issue, but a fundamental of not just who we are and what we believe, but the very, very nature of our creator of the universe. Okay, so when it comes to the non-negotiables of what it makes or breaks someone as a Christian, well, we obviously discussed a subsection of this in detail on our Wednesday night study. The uh, elder, as we call him, was out of town, so they inflicted me on the congregation. But the discussion was on the Trinity's role in salvation, and if we understand that the differences between Christians aren't as wide and, you know, divisive as they may seem, that if, you know, you angle your pulpit the wrong direction, suddenly you're not a Christian. No. When it comes to what defines us as Christians, what unites us together as a body of Christ, is first and most importantly that we believe the same fundamental things. Of course, salvation by grace through faith, the nature of Jesus as God, the Bible as the inspired, authoritative, and inerrant Word of God, where we find out all of these things, but most importantly that we believe in the same God, not just fundamentally, but by definition. We understand and recognize Him the same way. We rec also understand that groups that would deny the Trinity, groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians, Oneness Pentecostals, and others, are not Christians because they deny this fundamental reality. And we'll talk a little bit about that as you guys are getting your questions in. But this is the first and most important thing to understand about the Trinity is when we are using that term, we are describing a series of doctrines, understanding things about the God of Israel, the God who revealed himself in history through the person of Jesus Christ, and how Jesus Christ continued to reveal his ongoing relationship with the God, interestingly enough, he called his Father. 
speaking to a culture and society that believed in one and only one God, and also sent with all of his authority, being God, the Spirit to his church. How do we reconcile all of this? Well, the first thing that we need to do is understand that we have a whole Bible here. We're not New Testament only. We don't take the Andy Stanley route. We don't pick and <laughs> choose what ultimately uh, we like about Christianity. We take the good with the complicated. And the Trinity undoubtedly is a complicated doctrine. Truth tends to be that way. When we're talking about this with people and to people about this, the first thing that I need to caution, it was kind of the fifth thing that I mentioned on our Wednesday night study, but analogies are always going to fail when you're talking about something beyond creation. We've been given a revelation about something God's revealed to us mm -hmm. about himself, but the moment you start talking about an infinite in finite terms, inevitably it's going to lead to either heresy, a false teaching or doctrine, or at best yeah. a misrepresentation of what Scripture says. What have been some of the most popular ones? Like I know there's oh the steam ice water, there's the eggshell and yolk. Yeah, all the Neapolitan ice cream, you got <laughs> strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate. It's all a mess. Yeah, But it when it comes down <laughs> Especially to Especially when it, it melts. <laughs> oh yeah, and it turns gray for some reason. I'll get my color palette in later. But the fundamental nature of the Trinity needs to be defined and understood biblically. That if mm. anything is going to follow after, what do you mean by that, and it isn't followed by some distant ruffling, you're going to miss the point. So what do we mean by the Trinity? Well, the Trinity is a term that was meant to explain four fundamental doctrines about the God of the Bible. The first is monotheism. Mono meaning one, theos meaning God. We believe in the types of things that are rightfully called God, that there is one and only one. The most direct example in Scripture is Deuteronomy 6.4, what's called the Shema. It means here in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we can get into the significance of the term one, meaning a, you know, a cod compound unity in certain contexts. I won't even go that route. We want to stick to English here. We can communicate and understand that numerically the number of gods out there, despite the efforts of some other bad or false teachers, would ultimately and only ever amount to one. So if we categorically state the sort of things out there that are called God, and we take that as literal, we're missing some very plain truths in Scripture. And, of course, I don't want to base a doctrine on just one passage. We can go to others. <clears throat> for instance, the book of Isaiah, big one for understanding the nature of the Trinity, is, of course, very straightforward about this too. Isaiah 43 and verse 10 says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am before me, there was no God formed, and there shall be none after me. So God, as he is speaking to Isaiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, is speaking in terms of not only being omniscient, all-knowing, and eternal, says, there was no God before me, there aren't any after me, and there presently aren't. So is there, according to not just Deuteronomy, but Isaiah, lots of gods out there? No. God is being as clear as I would hope he could be in communicating. And what's this. interesting is the word the way God the way that scripture mentions it, none before me, none after me, God is eternal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's breaking not only, the calculator. Not, not only are there anything be before and after God, but that's like saying 
what's the number that comes before infinity? It, it, it's impossible to have something before infinity. So it's just, it's so profoundly one. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. mas uno. <laughs> but but uh, bilingual uh, quips aside, let's not settle for that. Maybe that's not clear enough. We can go to the next chapter, Isaiah 44 and verse 6, one of my favorites, by the way. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, a term for his eternal nature, besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. He's being a bit sarcastic here. He's using prophetic predictions in order to verify his nature as deity, which he's about to do in the next chapter. And he goes on to say, if you know someone else who's capable of it, let me know, because I, I miss that. I'd like to know. <laughs> but I'm the only one who declares like this. And he says, is there any God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. And I know everything, so fill in that. The next chapter makes the same point, Isaiah 45, 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a just God and Savior. Note that for later. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. So the fundamental reason why the Trinity is even a thing is because we have to reconcile certain things with this ongoing assumption that according to Judaism and Christianity, there is one and only one God. Now, why would that be a problem? Well, there are interesting little uh, details given to us in the Bible. On top of monotheism, the belief in one God, we're also told there are certain things only God can do and say. For example, if someone is told or uh, brags about being the creator of the universe, we go to Genesis 1-1, who's rightly credited as creator of the heavens and the earth? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm. If we describe someone as eternal, having no beginning, having no end, who would rightly be described as that? Well, Psalm 90 and verse 2 describes God that way. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, see previous reference, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So note this description of an ongoing present reality, regardless of a point or fix of start and end. When people ask, well, who created God? You're making a category error and realizing he's the sort of thing that doesn't fit into this time-space-matter assumption we make about the world. We can also look at other things like him being omnipresent and others, but the point stands. There are certain things that only God can say about himself and not be lying. So we not only believe there's only one God, but we identify God through certain specific attributes and traits. Hmm. In Scripture, this is the third point, there are three and only three separate things that describe themselves and speak about themselves in the sort of ways that only God can. For example, in Isaiah 64 and verse 8, the Father's name is introduced in Scripture. And there's other references to it, but this is the most direct. But now, O Lord, it's the covenant name of God, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are our potter, and we are the work of your hand. So God is being credited not just as creator, but given a relational title, Father. The Spirit is also an Old Testament name. In Job 33 and verse 4, Job speaking says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath, literally the Ruach, the Spirit of the Almighty, gives me life. Uh, creator again, and yet he has conscious credit and ability to create. Mm. In Isaiah 9-6, the term son is also introduced, again, the Old Testament. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. I don't have to go on, but the point is standing. This son is identified as literally El Gibor. In the next chapter, Isaiah 10, it notes that as applying to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. So only one God only certain things that can be said about God, the certain things that can only be said about God are given to these three distinct names, and here's where the Trinity comes in. These distinct names, personages we'd like to call them, are able to function independently from one another, yet share the same nature that is the true and living God. In Isaiah 48 and verse 16, this is the most direct Old Testament example of this, there are others, Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. God speaking. So when we look at, and I've exclusively limited myself to the Old Testament and these proof texts, by the way, on purpose, because the objections oftentimes made, that was a New Testament invention. That was a Christian thing. The Jews never believed in this whole concept of the Trinity. I base the doctrine entirely from Old Testament quotations on purpose to understand these ideas aren't new. But understand this as well. We can go to the New Testament as well. It's less than subtle. In Mark 1, 9 through 11, at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, we see the three members of the Trinity acting independently from one another as well, and yet maintaining this one status as God. We see Jesus addressing God his Father regularly, and also promising to send the Holy Spirit. That's in the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 16. We can see examples of the Holy Spirit being given credit as a person where he can be lied to, like in Acts chapter 5, and called God in the span of two verses. We can talk about the Father being credited, the Son being credited, and the Spirit being credited with Jesus' creation, resurrection. We could note those traits that exclusively belong to God, those actions that exclusively belong to God and all credited to these three persons. Now, when we are given objections to this, it's oftentimes one way or another going to come down to, so you say God's one in being and three in being? No, we need to be intentional with that. Categorically, what someone is and who someone is are two different subjects. Normally, in everything that God has created, one being and one person. I am a human. I am Sean. If I have a cat named Sean, I haven't violated the laws of logic, but I have distinguished a category. So if we say God's one what? God. That's what he is. And Father, Son, and Spirit is who he is. We're talking about something unique, but not something illogical. These are two different categories of descriptions. What's also important is when the objection comes up, well, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Well, most of the doctrines and terms that we believe about Christianity aren't words that are in the Bible. We come up with words to describe Mm -hmm. them biblically. If the concept is taught, that's not a problem. People who deny the Trinity, usually Unitarians, don't have the word Unitarian in the Bible, yet they affirm it, mm-hmm. and that's the point. The word monotheism isn't in the Bible. It's just a comment or a term we've used to encapsulate biblical teaching so that rather than me explaining in great detail, I can just say it's monotheism. 
Yeah. So <laughs> that's the point of the Trinity. That's where that doctrine comes from. So when you are solidifying this for yourself, when you're doing research on this for yourself, understand that it ultimately comes down to those four truth claims. Is there one God? If so, how do we identify that God? Since that is the case, three titles are given credit for being God in many different ways, and those three names are able to act independently from one another. Now, if you look at Hinduism, for example, and you note the thousands of deities that they have, the hundreds of thousands of deities, even millions, you wouldn't see a problem noting three would have commonality with each other because when it ultimately comes down to it, the life essence of all things, Shakti, and the ultimate essence, Brahman, are the same thing. It's no distinction. It's this all-universal and encapsulated concept of many gods and yet no gods at the same time. When they are saying we're polytheists and um, the word pantheist, that everything is God, we're not talking about a trinity. We're talking about this singularity of concepts that we can't actually define for you apart from their reference to ceasing to exist. And that's also in Buddhism as well, but certain sects are more atheistic. So when we're talking about Trinity, the only reason we came up with that word is because there's monotheism involved. How do we explain different things like gods walking around? In Hinduism, it's easy to explain. There's lots of gods. Of course, they can act differently. About but, 330 million. Yeah, but of course, they can act differently, but still <clears throat> be a part of this grand essence. We aren't working with that assumption. In Islam, you have this monad deity, and a problem that they oftentimes have to wrestle with or just dismiss entirely is why is it that the Quran is given traits that exclusively belong to Allah, yet is not Allah? Why is Jesus called a spirit from Allah, the word of Allah, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. without considering the implications <clears throat> of what that means? Why is it that the various chapters of the Quran, according to the Hadith, are described as birds who will intercede before us with Allah? I thought there's only one. Mm -hmm. Yet this entity that shares traits with Allah is interacting with Allah, and yet is not Allah. So the <laughs> problem is a bit more... Uh, nuanced well, it, and common than it seems. Isn't it pretty clear to most <clears throat> historians who have a proper Christian theological background to say that whoever wrote the Quran plagiarized and completely misunderstood the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and so you see these uh, seeds of Trinitarian thinking without actually grasping the fullness of the doctrine. Well, there's no better example of that than, for example, Surah 5.116, if you don't mind uh, me reading it here before we move on to our questions. This is the Quran's definition of the Trinity. It says, When Allah said, O Isa, son of Mary, did you say to the people, Take me and my mother as two gods other than Allah? And Jesus speaking said, Praise be unto you, it is not for me to say what is not true for me. For if I had said it, so indeed you know it. You know what is in my soul, I know not what is in your soul. Surely you are the knower of the unseen. Hmm. That's not the Trinity. So is that seemingly indicating that Mary would, would have been considered deity? According to the Quran, but what's interesting about <clears throat> this is when we look at the Quran's commands to violently subjugate Christians, Jews, and polytheists and hypocrites, Surah 9, 29, and 30, the accusation in Surah 9, 30 is this, 
the Christians say that Isa is the son of Allah, and the Jews say that Uzair, or Ezra, is the son of Allah, then Allah's curse be on them, oh, how far they are derived from the truth. What's interesting is that the Quran doesn't even give Christians the liberty of defining what Christianity is. It condemns them to death, or at least prolonged torture and a jizya tax, a extortion price basically, to live in Muslim lands solely on the basis of what the Quran says they believe, even though they never have. Because Adrian, you've had probably more interactions with God's chosen people than I have in my lifetime. Have you ever met one, or read of any in history, that considered Ezra the son of God? Uh, not that I can think off the top of my head, per se. Spoiler alert, <laughs> no. <laughs> and have you found any Christians that have claimed that Mary and Jesus are, along with the Father, let's say, three gods? And that's what we mean by the Trinity. <clears throat> well, not that part, but the, the Roman Catholic Church did begin to venerate Mary, but it didn't occur at the... Pro that the claimed lifetime of Muhammad. No, and it was hundreds of years later, and it kind of coincides with more of what historians would say probably when the Quran was written, but no one wants to be bold enough to put a date on it. But well, but some if, have read uh, Robert Spencer's book, Did Muhammad Exist? He's working on a second edition. Yeah. But, but it's curious to see you have Marian heresy that was brought in hundreds and hundreds of years after the proposed life of Muhammad being creeping into the Quranic text as a understanding of what Christians believe. So, but yes, your, to answer your question, no, uh, no Christian, no Orthodox Christian doctrine or, or document has ever stated that when we refer to the Trinity, we're really talking about Mary, Jesus, and the Father. <laughs> now I can, and David Woods quoted as saying this, I'll repeat it because it's accurate, I can understand a 7th century illiterate Arabian caravan robber not knowing what the Trinity is. Yeah. They, one of his nicknames, mockingly, was called the Ear because he believed everything he heard, and a lot of the Quran is him trying to backtrack of things that he said and then realizing, oh, there's implications yeah. here. Or even an 11th century Arabian misunderstanding the praying of the rosary or something like that. I don't know when the rosary, the actual uh, practice was uh, first brought forth, but... Our structure the, around the 5th, 6th century. But the idea of the veneration of Mary was an evolution. I mean, oh, yeah. so well, many things about that, but yeah. And note, even the most staunch Marian heretic, right? who would attribute to her claims that exclusively belong to God and the third category or second category of our definition of the Trinity, they would even acknowledge. They would venerate her as the domino, or not dominatrix, the redemptrix, that'd be an image, <laughs> the redemptrix of heaven. And yet what? Yeah, they she's co-redemptrix, co yeah. But they wouldn't call her a member of the Trinity. No. So no. Islam does us a favor, quote-unquote, in sending us to death for believing something We've never we don't believed. believe, yeah. <laughs> so that no one really has ever believed. <laughs> and yet, so understand that what you believe matters, how you define things matter, and if you let others do that for you, it gets funky. Mm. I'll just end it on that. Well, thanks, Sean. And uh, just out of uh, curiosity, uh, why is it that? I mean, if we can take the way you presented that was really well said, and if we can take that information, why is it that? Uh, there aren't Jewish rabbis any time uh, prior to the destruction of the temple ever suggesting the idea that there might be a distinction between the Spirit of God 
and God the Father or any kind of Trinitarian um, like leanings, not necessarily a fleshed out doctrine of the Trinity because it even took the early church hundreds of years to formulate the scriptural data in a, and, and state it in such a way where we weren't creating heresies or contradicting ourselves. Um, so it, it takes great, great care and thought to take the biblical da data and articulate the doctrine that the Bible teaches in a way without, like you said, if you use physical analogies, you're going to be teaching heresy. So it took the early church literally hundreds of years to refine the way you articulate what the Bible teaches about the nature of God in light of the, the coming of the, or the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it would be, I'm just curious if there would, why would, why would Jews be so uh, rejecting of the doctrine of the Trinity um, when a lot of the passages you quoted were from the Old Testament? Well, you, you say that there weren't any Hebrews who had this understanding of God's revelation of well, himself Well, I'm assuming. Before. I don't know for sure. but um, They would be surprised to hear that. It's a very modern revisionist attempt, mm -hmm. and I mean modern in that, like, post the destruction of the temple, think around the 1100s, especially with some of the more prominent rabbis that are respected in modern Orthodox communities. But if you look up, and this is a book I'll make reference to because, like Adrian, I can't name the rabbis myself right now off the back of my hand, problem of being on the spot, <laughs> is uh, Michael Brown's book, Dr. Michael Brown, I should say, who's a fantastic Messianic Hebrew who's made it his calling, goal, and mission to engage with his fellow sons of Abraham in order to show them where Messiah is in their scriptures, his mm. book, Answering Jewish Objections. And this is one of them. He gives citation after citation to Second Temple, meaning the Herod, Nehemiah, that time period, their return from the Babylonian exile, documented accounts, what are called the Targums. These Targums were, because Aramaic was a more accessible language, not a lot of people spoke Hebrew after they were taken into captivity in Babylon, where the main language was Aramaic. Most of that generation was just born and raised, surrounded by those who spoke Aramaic. Those who spoke Hebrew were kind of the odd men out, so to speak. These translations of the Old Testament, the Bible that they had in their possession, all spoke about a very interesting term that was later called in Kabbalic mysticism the Metatron, the angel of the Lord, as we render him in English, the one who has the name of the Lord in him, distinct from the Lord, and yet is referred to and given unique titles as the Lord. It's called today the heresy, not our term, theirs, of the two powers in heaven. And then the Ruach Yahweh is also given credit for certain divine traits as well, but they don't pay it as much attention as when Christians, and by the way, the original Christians were all Hebrew, drew attention to as well when Jesus specifically drew attention to his personage and his activity was a lot more pronounced in the days of the early church. But look up those terms, look up that book, Michael Brown's Answering Jewish Objections, and he'll go into these things in detail as far as Second Temple rabbis debating this topic and even afterwards as well. Another great resource, if you uh, don't mind very very prolonged uh, live streams. He can go oftentimes on these topics for three hours, and I'd benefit from it greatly myself. Um, Anthony Rogers, 
a beloved brother in the Lord, uh, fantastically well-read in the ancient Hebrew sources. He speaks Hebrew as well, mm. and his wife is Hebrew. He had to learn all of this stuff in debates with her father, oh, his wow. father-in-law. So, That'd be um, good training. <laughs> yeah, Anthony Rogers is another great resource on this if you want to talk about the Hebrew contentions of the nature of the Trinity, but that's something to keep in mind. It's not a new idea. It was certainly not as well fleshed out as the revelation of Jesus Christ would note, and that's why James White in his book, The Forgotten Trinity, notes the full revelation of the Trinity was at the indentation mark between Malachi and Matthew. I disagree with him respectfully. I think that the Trinity was as clear at the time of Moses as it was at the time of Jesus. They just had more citation, but be that as it may. The reason why it's reactionary isn't because it's not in their sources. It's because Christians kept putting them into a corner, saying everything that you believe and taught, Jesus also believed and taught. Mm -hmm. What's your problem? And then they said, well, he never taught that. Look at our, our rabbis here. And that's essentially how that story went. So terms mm -hmm. to remember, the Targums. Second Temple Judaism, names to remember, Michael Brown and Anthony Rogers, resources, it was put on the screen, but for those listening on radio, answering Jewish objections. It's a two-volume set as well. A quick, a quick rapid-fire response. Uh, someone says, the idea of the Trinity wasn't even in, was invented by Christians hundreds of years after, after the time of Jesus and his disciples. How would you respond to that, like if someone were to say? Who's talking? Um, it could just be... Let's say it was a, a a Jewish, a secular Jew, someone okay. who uh, doesn't really know Judaism very well, but okay. says I'm Jewish and uh, has these ideas about Christianity, and say, yeah, you guys, you know, the Christianity as it is today wasn't even invented until like the time of Constantine. The idea of the Trinity and the deity, all this stuff that you Christians believe, was invented hundreds of years later. How would you typically? engage with someone saying that kind of thing? Well, just to lay framework before you hear my. 30-second response. Understand I prefer to stick to the Old Testament to be one step ahead of these kind of conversations. And if I have in my mind the proof texts and verses and saying, you know, well, tell me what you think about this. You think that we're Trinitarians? Here's a quote from my Bible. And they say, I don't care about your New Testament. I said, that's from Isaiah. <laughs> that, that's from your Tanakh. That, that's what the Hebrews would call the Old Testament. So I I'd usually take that route. I'd give a proof text of the Trinity and then note, no, that's Isaiah 48, 16. What do you have here? Hmm. But then they say, well, none of my rabbis ever taught that. Well, <laughs> were you listening? Because you said yourself you don't really know your religion all that well. But I think the best way to respond to that, and like I was very transparent about here on the radio show, if I don't know something, I'll say it. I'll say, well, you know, that is curious, and naturally I don't want to say I believe something if I don't show you where and when and why. Could I look that up and get back to you? Do you can I have your number and we can, maybe can uh, have a, uh, some shawarma later and talk about it? Or if I'm talking to a Muslim, obviously I'd go to his mm -hmm. Quran and say, you're not playing by your own rules. You don't get to deny this. The Bible's uncorrupted. Here's what it says. If I'm talking to an atheist, I'd say, what do you care whether Christianity was developed or not? Here's what I believe on the basis of the historical resurrection of Jesus. And I'd go to 1 Corinthians 15, dated within months of the events themselves, and that's not according to mm -hmm. Christians. It's according to atheist scholars mm -hmm. as well. There's a lot of different angles because there's a lot of different people sure, you could talk yeah. to. And, and you, oftentimes in these conversations, you're engaging with that person, not, yeah. you don't want to uh, debate the idea that they got it from. You want to engage with that person as much as you can, but at the same time pointing out where they might have gotten that idea to help them understand that you have a lot of presuppositions that you probably haven't thought through. And so by asking questions and dialoguing with them, you can help them understand what those presuppositions are, those false assumptions 
another quick little rapid fire response um genesis let us make man in our image in our likeness it's plural like us Mm -hmm. our some hebrew scholars (laughs) like michael heiser would say this is not trinitarian um a a popular one he's passed away now but uh are they wrong is this from the very very first chapters of the bible giving us a little clue that god is a plurality of persons, even though he is one being. Yeah, Heiser is all but alone in that position. Mm-hmm. I think the only other people who would deny that are Origen and Unitarians. But when it comes to that revelation, obviously my proof texts go more into the prophets and Isaiah, or I'd go to later in Genesis, say Genesis 19, where it notes the Lord, Yahweh, rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord in heaven. Hmm. Uh, Those are much more clear examples in the Hebrew language, which I am not affluent in. I won't pretend to know something I don't. There's a reason the translators put it that way, and when my father gets back on Monday, I'm sure he could give into more details. That's a text, but if I'm talking to a Hebrew, they're going to find a way around it. Hmm. I'd have to be too nuancy. But for you personally, if you you did have a little background, or at least from what you've read, this is in in line with yes. the idea of the doctrine of the trinity this yeah it would be a good text but i wouldn't call it a proof text there would have gotcha. to be more okay. information yeah okay that's good that's fair enough well we do have a question so far uh, uh we have a, a little bit of a quiet day today uh, why is it when i'm always doing that we get very few and then other days it's just like but uh, i don't mind the conversation yeah it's great great uh, edna wants to know hi I'm, I'm concerned i've been going to a word of faith church in my town, I was really sick, going to churches. It told me if it be real, you'll be healed. Uh, prayed never better. Then uh, I went to this Word of Faith church and started speaking life and prophesying over myself and was healed. A friend's doctor told her she couldn't have kids. Now she has seven. Uh, one is fully grown, youngest one year old. So... However, <clears throat> they started teaching we are gods. Now I'm concerned if I leave, I will be sick again. What should I do? Thanks. Thoughts, Adrian uh, and Sean. <laughs> so you were asked directly. How would you respond in that situation? Well, I would. Uh, if if I were sitting down with you, Edna, I would say, well, first of all, what do you mean by the word of faith? What does that mean to you? A word of faith is a a term that has been used to describe a particular set of doctrines revolving around not just belief in miracles and healing. That's a separate issue. But word of faith is a different, more New Age influence understanding of what faith is. The Orthodox Christian position of faith is a relational dynamic between the subject and the object, and the object is God. So our faith is only as good as the object of our faith, God, not how much I believe. And what Word of Faith theology does is it says, no, faith isn't a relational dynamic between a subject and the object. (laughs) Faith is a force, a power that even God tapped into to create the universe, that faith itself is a force, and that words are a way of, of yielding that force. So if I say, gosh, you know, I'm feeling a little itch in my throat, um, <clears throat> I think I might be sick. Oh, don't say that. See, now you're speaking something, and when you speak, you bring that reality into existence. So that's what, now take those concepts and then spread it to every area of your Christian walk and life. That is Word of Faith theology. 
not the belief that God can heal you. So it's okay to go to a church and say, let's pray that God would heal you. That's very acceptable, very biblical. Um, but if they were to say something like, it's God's will that you always be healed, that would be theological error or biblical error, that it's always God's will for you to be healed. Not only that, but how much you believe and speak that God will heal you is a, a, the, how you'll get the results. <laughs> so if you didn't speak with enough belief in your words, enough faith in your words, uh, and you don't get healed, then it's your fault. That is word of faith. And <clears throat> typically, <laughs> theologians, and I should say false teachers, who have taught that form of faith, that unbiblical view of faith, also teach that, Jesus, as one said, I am as, uh, this is I think Ken Hagen said that, I am as much of an incarnation of God as Jesus of Nazareth was. And so these teachers throughout <laughs> uh, the last many decades, many, many decades have taught that we are little gods running around. I remember sitting in a class that I was kind of helping my uh, a family member navigate. They were <clears throat> teaching some of these concepts and uh, this family member told me, gosh, this is such great teaching and I went to it. And that's what they were teaching, <laughs> the same word of faith theology. And they went down the line saying, are you a little God? Are you a God? Are you a God? And then when they got, and everyone was agreeing, yeah, I'm a little God. And, and when it got to me, I said, well, no, <laughs> not a little God. There's only one God. And of course they tried to point me to scriptures, trying to show me that no, the Bible teaches that outright heresy. And if that's the church that you found yourself in, well, number one, it's not the church that healed you. If you were actually genuinely healed because of your trust in who God is, not a promise that you are guaranteed to heal, but the nature and power of God to heal, if it be his will, then it's not the church that healed you. You can be anywhere on planet earth and God will heal you the same and respond to a faithful child of God in the same way. However, if the church is a word of faith theology, it isn't that theology that healed you. Again, it's God. I would run the other direction. It is full-on heresy to teach that we are little gods. And if they're even scratching the surface of that, uh, and you're not equipped to combat, let's say it's uh, uh, your run-of-the-mill Pentecostal church who sometimes run the edge close to that kind of theology, and if there's a few members or a few teachers that are teetering on the edge of this doctrine, and if you don't, you're not equipped to combat it, to uh, undermine the teaching and get un, uh, unanimous consensus among your community of believers that this is not biblical, then I would, I would definitely believe, and I would not be at all concerned that you're going to lose your healing because that's not taught in Scripture. It goes against God's nature and character as he's demonstrated throughout church history and throughout biblical history that, that when he acts, he's going to take it back because you feel like someone's t teaching error. Uh, I would say that that faithfulness to leave would be uh, more commendable by God on your behalf than the opposite, but don't live by fear. Yeah, and a great example of this in action is in Matthew chapter 9, also mentioned in Mark 5, with the woman who had a flow of blood. She went to Jesus in a very, quote-unquote, unbiblical way. She thought, if I touch the end of his clothing, the, the hem of his garment, the, that little tassel thing that Hebrews would identify themselves as, then I would be healed. Now, when she did this, Jesus was already in the middle of accomplishing another healing, one that was far more... I won't say taxing, but definitely more a priority, if not because the father of Jairus, is, or Jairus, his daughter was sick, about to die. 
he didn't get there first. But she touched him. Jesus stopped everything and said, who touched me? Now, in the middle of a crowd, Peter's like, who hasn't touched you? Where, <laughs> look where we are. But she says, no, I felt virtue go out of me. And that, that's an interesting statement in and of itself. But when the woman was exposed, notice she had a flow of blood. That's something that would have basically put her in a state of isolation, according to Jewish mm -hmm. law. She wasn't supposed to be out in public, and girls, you can understand why. But in that perpetual state, she was desperate. She came to Jesus, and Jesus specifically explains, it wasn't my clothing that saved you. It wasn't this relic or this iconography that healed you. Your faith has made you well. And you mentioned it. It's with an object relationally. The word faith is translated from pistis in Greek. It means trust with reason. She had reason to believe that Jesus was the source of that mm -hmm. healing. And in, you know, not getting her like daily doctor's prescription. It's not like Jesus like tore off an end of his robe and say, now just keep your hand on that. Otherwise it's the healing's not going to give, right? Yeah. God is the one who healed her. So when we falsely associate literally false teachers who would coerce us and saying, if you leave my church or you badmouth this, God's mm -hmm. going to curse you. I'm going to curse you because I have God's power. Don't be afraid of them. Mm -hmm. This is what brings us all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, believe mm -hmm. it or not. In verse 13, it says in verse 1, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and the wonder comes to pass of which he spokes to you, and we'll get more into the key difference here in a minute, but you're seeing healings. You're seeing fertility restored, maybe. Now, I, I'm sure I'm not alone here. I question whether or not those are plants, but let's just leave that as it may. The wonder comes to pass. Does that mean it's from God? No, because guess what accompanies it? They say, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. It says, you shall not li listen to that prophet or dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after him and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and serve him, hold fast to him, on it goes. So when we encounter false teachers and they seem, let's just grant that, they seem to have miracles behind them. It doesn't prove anything mm. because A, it could be a lie. B, it could be something God's allowing mm. for the sake of another more important thing, your relationship with him. Or D, mm. it could be like the woman in a flow of blood, God's working in spite of them, not in light of them. Mm -hmm. There could be genuine people in this Word of Faith church that aren't processing all of the false doctrine, but are simply there to hear from God, to receive healing from God, and he met yeah. them where they were at. But it doesn't verify their false teaching. This mm -hmm. does. Right. Or doesn't. Yeah. And that's the point. Yeah, and don't base the, the fact that you had experienced something seemingly supernatural, miraculous, don't use that as a testing tool to say, well, they must be teaching the truth. Because again, uh, sometimes God heals and, and does things on, and you just look at Old Testament history of how God has moved in the lives of people who had committed horrible sins, and yet God was still working through and in them and for them, uh, uh, for his great purposes. So uh, always tests um, doctrine through scripture and not experience. We're t talking about our faith is only as good as the object of our faith, and that is the God of the Bible, and uh, as opposed to or in contrast to faith in faith. That's really what it amounts to, is the word of faith movement is putting your faith in the act of faith rather than the person behind our faith, who uh, 
it is according to his will whether or not we would be healed in, in any moment of our lives. And, uh, and if he doesn't heal us, then it just doesn't mean he's not his will. But the Bible doesn't teach that God guarantees healing for every human being, uh, every Christian that is part of his plan, and that we're just missing out on these healings because we just didn't have enough yielding of that force of faith. Uh, that would be uh, an unbiblical version of faith. <clears throat> yeah. Well, thanks for that question, Ed, and I hope that was helpful. And if you maybe want to uh, give a little more, ask for a little more clarification, feel free to uh, come and uh, come back and and catch us on Monday or next week sometime, and we'd be happy to dialogue with you a little bit more about it. Um, let's see here. Do we have any? Uh... Got a question from uh, Allie, who I think you're familiar with. Uh, she wants to know, given the crazy election stuff that's going to be coming up next year, do you think God ever got involved in an election or selection of a king during Bible times? Um, yeah, very much so. When it came to the situation involving the choosing of the first king of Israel, it was actually an act of judgment rather than an act of grace on his part. You can read this in the book of 1 Samuel. When Saul was chosen, it was because the people were asking for a king. And the reason for that wasn't because they wanted someone to properly represent God like Moses had. They had someone like Samuel, someone who could perform miracles, someone who was accurately dividing the word of truth. Not the best of parents, but who is. And all of that then being said, they said, give us a king so that we can be like the other nations. This broke Samuel's heart. She's like, what am I doing wrong? And God had to come alongside him and say, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Give them what they want, but make sure they know. Read to them the warning I gave them already. I think it would have been 400 years before this, maybe around 300, but 400 years before this, in the book of Deuteronomy through Moses saying, here's what the kings of Israel are going to do, and here is, of course, why you don't want that. But they said, nonetheless, in spite of the taxes, in spite of getting involved into unnecessary wars, in spite of everything they would do that would lead them to destruction, they said what? Give us a king. So he said, okay, I'll give you a king. So he raised up Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, and interestingly enough, he looked the part. That was it, though. <laughs> and in God's anointing of this specific king, he called Samuel to do that, the raising up of an elected official. But it was an act of judgment, and his character only took him so far. He did do good things. Um, when Nahash was threatening the northern tribes of Israel, he rallied the armies and came to their defense. It was a good thing. But then you remember he disobeyed God not once, not twice, but three times. And at that point, he said, you're out. He anointed David as well. Through direct revelation to Samuel, he anointed him as the next king of Israel. And that, of course, was also through revelation. What's also interesting is at the start of 2 Samuel, the books were divided up later on, but this focus on King David and his rise to power, he didn't become king right away. Not just in 1 Samuel 17, but also in 2 Samuel, the third king of Israel, noting that, was David. The one before him was named Mephibosheth, and he was one of Saul's descendants. When Saul got killed in battle against the Philistines, he was his noted successor because of one of uh, Saul's generals. I think his name was Abner. And his appointing of this leadership was also opposed by the appointing of David to the tribe of Judah, to his posse. And there was conflict in Israel, and people were worried, saying, is this guy going for a power grab? Are we going off to the dynasty? David technically married into Saul's family, but he wouldn't have been next in line. What's going on here? 
And so when God directly got involved again in elections, if you want to call it that, his appointment of David was codified in first Sam- or second Samuel, excuse me, chapter seven, when the prophecy that specifically denotes that Messiah would be a son of David, he says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. One from your offspring will never cease from sitting on the throne of Israel mm. and his kingdom will be unending. God recognized David as the rightful successor, not Mephibosheth, especially given the fact that he got killed shortly <laughs> before that. But the point being made is this, um, concerning his people, concerning prophecy, concerning their well-being and the nature of his work of redemption in the world, God has gotten involved in politics before. Now, this is where people are going to maybe jump the gun a little bit and say, so you think he's getting involved in ours? (laughs) And just like when people make the opposite claim and saying, do you think Satan's the one opposing him in my life? I say the same thing in both situations. We're not that important. When it comes to the state of the United States, I love my country. I'm grateful for the freedoms that it's allowing me thus far. But when it comes down to it, there is no biblical reason for us to believe that God would directly intervene in our politics. Abuse of power is going to be Mm -hmm. abuse of power. Use of power is going to be use of power. These leaders will answer to God for what they've done and have done. If I'm going to claim prophetically in the name of God, that there is going to be some divine intervention in terms of the election. I am literally putting my neck out if Mm -hmm. I would dare to say that. And I fear God too much to speak presumptuously in that regard. Other than the the generalization of saying that God is sovereign over the earth, he is king of the earth, and that every government that bears the sword is an institution of God. So in a general sense, every election God has intervened in, even the evil ones, and uh, his ways and purposes, his eternal plan is uh, mysterious to us, so we wouldn't know. But usually when we say something like, well, isn't he going to intervene in our life? Usually it's in the favor of what in our finite, broken, sinful human being minds have in store for what we think is best. Yeah. And uh, we just don't know the future. So. Uh, yeah, and uh, let me give one more example here. I'm sure you guys know the name Nebuchadnezzar. He came to an interesting conclusion after his bout with boanthropy, and that's literally what he went through. Um, when it came to the end of that time of judgment, he said in verse 36, At the same time my reason returned for me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, my counsels and nobles reported to me, I was restored to my kingdom. Excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, now note this, extol the king of heaven all those whose works are truth and his ways justice those who walk in pride he is able to put down Hmm. so noting god's involvement and you can note as well there's a lot of old testament prophets that noted nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of babylon by name I, i see the second part intentionally as someone he raised up for his purposes to judge the people of israel Now, when they went too far, they also would experience judgment, but the point still stands. God does get involved in power structures, but we need biblical support for that. We can't just say on a whim. What about uh, the New Testament example, speaking of micro-elections, not necessarily of governments and kings, but Jesus chose his 12, Mm -hmm. and then when he ascended, they thought, well, we only have 11, he needs 12, and they cast lots in order to decide whether or not they should, who should be replace Judas's spot as the 12th apostle, uh, was that just, was the inspiration of recording what they did, or did actually, uh, was that divinely, the act of, let's cast lots, do you, do you think there's a, 
case to be made that that was also divinely inspired and that the results were divinely inspired? Well, I'd say divinely not inspired, but definitely permissible because there are decisions that we just have to make and and even informed ones will have benefits and consequences. We'll answer to God for whether we did our homework or not. Mm-hmm. In this case, the choosing of Judas's successor, it's a fantastic opportunity for us to understand what qualified the apostles to tell us about Jesus and why their words have authority on par with the Old Testament prophets, because their qualifications were spelled out in looking for a successor mm-hmm. of which they chose Matthias. Now, people say it should have been Paul. I don't think so. Paul himself noted a very specific distinction between him and the capital A apostles, and this is why. Mm-hmm. In the successor being chosen for Judas, and Peter referencing scripture, by the way, to verify that as a good decision. Already a good start. He says, therefore, verse 21 of Acts 1, of these men who have, one, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us. So if you call yourself an apostle and that your words are scripture, were you and I witness to Jesus's time on this earth? From what time? When he was a baby? No. Beginning, verse 22, from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us. One of us must become a witness of these things with us of Mm. his resurrection. Two people fit that description, and then they basically just flipped a coin. There was up to 120 that consistently stuck around, and probably some more absentees among them, but only two that were there from the very beginning to the very end throughout the whole time. Apart from the 12 that Jesus chose. Right, yeah. So, So in the casting of lots wasn't asking necessarily for God, pick somebody it was no, like well saying these we don't, both qualify so they're both good let's just flip a coin <laughs> well thank you uh well um pastor scott i'd love to talk more about your question we'll get to that on monday thank you for joining us we have hope you have a great weekend uh god bless you and uh, we'll see you again sometime soon you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.